Well, good morning, North Wake. Sorry about the picture. I got tricked into that. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 John as we continue our series. 1 John chapter 1. In a minute, we'll start reading in verse 5. Walking is important. Now, we learn more and more how important they say, you know, medical science shows walking is very important. Should do more of it. And so we do. We try. And we keep track of it. Right? How many of you have a Fitbit, a watch, a garment, or something to keep track of your steps? Any step counters out there? You're out there. I know you are. How many steps you get? Right? 5,000. If it's a really good day, you could get 10,000 steps in one day. I talked to somebody yesterday, uh, they, they tried it, they put it on, they were at 25,000 steps. That's impressive. I've never tried it, I don't intend to. I have an office job, probably around four or five, six hundred, is my guess. <laughs> you know, I, I have to occasionally walk to the printer, uh, but it's, I'm just not, I'm not walking a whole lot. I saw an article recently, it said, uh, this was the title, Why Walking is the Most Underrated Form of Exercise. I was like, okay, well, I mean, it's just walking, right? It, but no, it said, um, apparently it's based on science, at least it says it is. It said, science shows that placing one foot in front of the other leads to some seriously impressive mental and physical benefits. Wow, just walking. I saw another article, it said, uh, listed the seven benefits of walking. Walking just 30 minutes a day. It said your, gene, your, your mood will improve, your creative juices will start flowing, your genes will get a little looser, you'll slash your risk of chronic disease, you'll keep your legs looking great, you'll start to get a little more regular, whatever, whatever that is, uh, and your other goals will seem more reachable. Wow, just walking 30 minutes a day. Walking is important. Now, I do, have a, I do have one issue with walking because did you know that walking is in the Olympics? Did you know that? Why? Why is walking in the Olympics? There's a 20K and a 50K walk. Now, it's impressive to walk that fast for that long, and they call it race walking. Is, is that not an oxymoron? <laughs> Racing is not walking. If you're walking, you're purposefully going slow. Why would you have a race and then limit how quickly you can go? You know, imagine racing a sports car and saying, okay, the rules are you can't shift out of second gear. You're like, what, what kind of rule is this? Or if you have a horse race, you say, well, the horses can trot or canter, but they can't gallop. That's, that's silly. Walking is important, though. It probably shouldn't be an Olympic sport, though I do still rank it slightly above curling. <laughs> I don't know what that's all about. I still... My, and my wife's Canadian, she's there, she's in Canada right now, but I still don't know what it's all about. I don't get it. 
Walking is important, though. And the Bible pictures life as walking. And John, in this passage, uses this metaphor of walking because it represents the purposeful, continual pace of life. It implies activity and progress. And so John discusses how Christians should be walking and how they shouldn't be walking. Well, in the context of, before we start reading the passage of 1 John, John, remember, is, it's, it's written for a number of purposes. One of them, according to chapter 5, verse 13, John writes so that his readers might know that they have eternal life. And in writing to them and in giving comfort and assurance to some, this epistle is like a two-edged sword because in, in doing that, he's also exposing the false teachers. John talks about how there was a group that left them. They, by, by their beliefs and practice, they denied the truth. He says they went out from us, but they were not really part of us. If they were really part of us, they would have remained with us, but their going out showed they were never really of us. And so John is writing to expose them and also at the same time to give comfort and assurance to those who are true believers. And so he offers a series of three tests that cycle through 1 John. And the first one, the one that we'll look at today, is the test of righteousness, sometimes called the moral test. And what John's going to say is that a true believer is one who walks in the light. A true believer is one who walks in the light, who does not live in sin. The second test is the test of love, also called the social test. A true believer loves others, loves other Christians, because you can't claim to love God whom you can't see if you can't love your brother whom you can't see. And then he also gives the, the test of belief or the doctrinal test. A true believer affirms the apostolic gospel, the, the truth about Jesus. He's the Messiah and that he has come in the flesh. And so as we, as we look at this, let's, let's pray and ask, ask for God's help and unpack this message this morning. Father, we come before you and we, Lord, we ask for mercy. You know our hearts. You know where we are. Lord, and we know that we are accountable to you and that the thoughts and intents of our heart are laid bare before you. And so we ask that now your word would accomplish its purpose for us. And so, Lord, speak to us. Pray that you would grant us grace and mercy to hear, to receive, and to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things that we see from this text that believers are called to. What are we called to? The first is this. As believers, we are called to walk in the light. We're called to walk in the light. And it's really easy to see why. Because he says God is light and God is in the light. And if you want to have fellowship with God, you need to be where he is. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But he says if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
Notice the source of John's message. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. Well, who is he talking about? The first four verses were about Jesus, right? He says, that which was from the beginning. This is how he starts his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. This is the message we proclaim to you, that the one that we heard from him. You see, what John is giving us is eyewitness testimony. He is an inspired apostle of God. And so this message comes with the authority of God. Well, what is the content of John's message? He says it's a message we got from Jesus himself. And the content is simply this. God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. This is another metaphor, isn't it? What does it mean that God is light? Well, he contrasts it with walking in darkness, walking in sin. And what he's saying is there's no sin in God. He's perfect. He's blameless. He's without fault. He's without blemish. And he says this emphatically. The original language uses a double negative. We we can't do that in English, kind of. And he says there is no darkness in him at all. In other words, there is not any darkness in him. It's what Jesus taught us in Sermon on the Mount. He says, you therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the psalmist says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and is kind in all his works. God is light. If that's true, what's the consequence of that message He says, if God is light and has no darkness, then if we are walking in darkness, if we are walking in sin, we have no fellowship with him. Now, the good news is that fellowship is possible. You Notice he doesn't say, if you say you have fellowship with God, you lie. There's something in between, right? He says, you can't claim fellowship with him and walk in darkness, Fellowship with God is possible. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, created us to have fellowship with him. Don't pass over that too quickly. That's an astounding truth. And it's a major difference between Christianity and Islam. You see, in Islam, God himself is unknowable in any intimate relational sense. Listen to what one Islamic scholar said. God does not reveal himself to anyone in any way. God reveals only his will. Christians talk about the revelation of God himself, by God and of God. But that is the great difference between Christianity and Islam. We can have fellowship with God, relationship with God. That's why we were created. But John assumes something here. If we're going to claim that, you see, to have fellowship, it is possible to have fellowship with God, but only if one is not walking in darkness or walking in sin. What does it mean to walk in sin? You see, he's talking about not just that you'd never sin, but he's talking about a lifestyle that embraces sin. 
He's talking about those who purposefully live unrepentant lifestyles of sin. And he says, if you, if you want to claim, say you have fellowship with God, and yet you are living and walking in sin, that you lie. You see, what John is saying is when we choose sin, we are necessarily reju- rejecting God. Didn't Jesus say this? You can't serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Being a Christian is not primarily about going to church, voting a certain way, or being pro-life, or serving, or even witnessing. It's a relationship where through the blood of Jesus, we have a relationship with the God of the universe, the one who created us. You see, claiming to be a Christian, this is what John is saying, claiming to be a Christian, saying, if we say, and actually being a Christian can be two different things. You see, the one thing that John is clear about is this, that a verbal profession is not the same thing as a heartfelt confession. A lot of people say things, and we, we see frauds all the time, right? On the news, somebody's exposed that so-and-so was claiming to be a doctor, and we find out he has no degree. He taught himself online, and he opened his doors, and people started coming to him. Or somebody claimed to be a military hero. Come to find out they were never in the service. Fraud. You can claim something. It doesn't make it a reality, and if that becomes exposed, everything is taken. You see, we're lying to ourselves and others if we claim one thing and then live in sin. Listen to the startling words of Jesus. He says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. How do we know if we're living in darkness? You see, if we're living in darkness, then what? There's a tendency to hide our sin. Darkness, again, it's this metaphor. It's a place where we hide. What are you hiding? John is saying, don't hide your sin. Are you hiding your sin in the darkness? Do you have a secret sin that you're, you're hiding from your spouse, from your parents, from your friends? Do you avoid people at church? You don't want them to find out these things. Well, as we see, we'll see, John's, the remedy is to, is to not hide, but to confess. See, sin is a strange type of weed that flourishes in the darkness. It grows and it takes over our life. 
But when the light of the gospel comes in and shines on it and the truth of God's word, it kills it. John tells us instead we are to walk in the light, to let the light of God's word and his truth shine on us to expose our sin and to reveal to us the path in which we are to walk. You see, John in his gospel uses this imagery again He used it earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. It seems like a good thing, right? Light has come into the world. But he said, the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He says, come to the light. Is your secret sin worth more to you than fellowship with God and fellowship with his people? That's the issue at stake. Because God is light, to have fellowship with him, we must live in the light. But what happens when we sin? Is John expecting us to be perfect? Is that what it means to walk in the light, that we have to be perfect? Well, that's not what John means. This brings us to our second point. As believers, we are called to confess our sins. John addresses this potential misunderstanding. He gives a clarification. And he says, instead, no, we all sin, but we're to confess our sin. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, the reality is, is that we all sin. All believers sin. And it doesn't help to deny our sin. As a matter of fact, John lists in this passage six things that are true if you deny your sin. In verses 6, 8, and 10, he says, We lie, we do not practice the truth, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. It does not help to deny our sin. We know the text, Romans 3.23, says, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Started back with Adam, he sinned. Noah sinned. Abraham sinned. Moses sinned. David sinned. Elijah sinned. Mary sinned. Peter and Paul sinned. And we've sinned. And John is not just talking about sins before we're believers. He's talking about even as Christians We sin, we fight against the old flesh. But he says, you can't claim that you're without sin. What do you do? The antidote is you confess your sin. That is how you still walk in the light. How can you sin and still walk in the light? The answer is you confess your sins. You see, it doesn't help to deny our sin and it doesn't help to redefine our sin. That's another thing we do. We tend to redefine our sin. 
There, there is pressure from our culture. I don't know if you feel it, but there is pressure to redefine what is sinful. And say, oh yeah, we, you know, it says that, but really, and there's some you know, maneuvering going on to redefine sin. But it's not just from out the outside. You know what? That also comes from inside our hearts. Because we, we tend to justify our own sin, our own pet sins that we love so much. John said, don't deny it. Don't try to redefine your sin. You know, Jesus talked about sin. He says it's not just an outward thing. He talked about murder. You've heard it was said of those of old, right? Do not commit murder. He says, well, someone who's angry with his brothers committed murder. You can't redefine it. It starts in your heart. It's not even the actual things that you do. It's the actual things that you think. What about sexual immorality? He says, you have heard, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Paul says a similar thing about idolatry. Yeah, you don't, you don't worship an idol. Well, you know what? There's many things, including covetousness, which is sin. Greed is sin. It doesn't help to deny our sin. It doesn't help to redefine our sin. The issue, though, are you characterized by your sin? See, the issue is not perfection, it's direction. He's talking about walking. Are you living a life of sin, hiding it? Or when you sin, do you confess it to others? See, what John is saying is when you sin, confess it. And you can do this individually, you can do this corporately. Do you confess your sin on a regular basis? Well, sometimes it takes intentionality, doesn't it? Mark 135 is an amazing verse. We're talking about Jesus, the sinless one, doing something. What does it say? It says that, right, very early when it was still dark, Jesus got up and he went to a desolate place and there he prayed. He did this though he was without sin. And notice, he had a plan, he had a place, and he had a practice. He got up, he had a plan, he got up early. When it was still dark, he had a place. He went to a, a desolate, a solitary place, and he had a practice. There he prayed. If Jesus did this and he was without sin, how much more do we need to be intentional to confess our sins? Where's your prayer closet? Where do you go? Do you have a place? You probably should have a place. Is it at home? Is it in your study? Is it in your office? And you probably should have a time. Is it in the morning before anyone else gets up? Is it at lunch? Is it while the kids are napping? Is it in the evening when everyone's gone to bed? Be intentional. We do, we, and we do this not only individually, but we can do this corporately. James tells us what? To confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Confess to one another. A friend for coffee. Just letting them know our struggles. Being honest. I'm really struggling with this. Will you pray for me? Expose it to the light. Your small group, you have a time of prayer. Man, does anybody need prayer? Yeah, I'm really struggling. You guys pray for me. Exposing it to the light. When we confess, we have the promise that God forgives and he cleanses us. He forgives us. No longer counts it against us. As far as from the east as from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. 
and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He removes the defilement of sin so that we can walk in his presence from all unrighteousness, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And he forgives us and cleanses us. Why? Because he is faithful and just. God is faithful. It's his character. It's who he is. When he says something, he delivers. In the Old Testament, Exodus 34, it says the the Lord passed before him, it's referring to Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives, he cleanses, because he's faithful. But John also tells us something that's, it's a little, to be honest with you, it's a little bit unexpected. He says that God does this because he's just. I don't think that's what we would expect right there normally. I think you would, you would expect something like God forgives us because he's faithful and gracious. Or he's faithful and merciful. But he forgives because he's just. How, how does somebody who deserves the penalty get off and the judge be just? That doesn't sound like justice, does it? It sounds like mercy. Well, the answer is found in what follows. It's only through the atoning death of Jesus, where, as Paul put it, God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, to have fellowship with God, we're called to walk in the light. Not perfection, but the right direction. We confess our sins. And he's faithful to forgive us our sins, but... John also says that he's just. How can he also be just? And this brings us to our last point. As believers, we are called to trust in our advocate. We're called to trust in our advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous who is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God forgives and cleanses and is righteous and just. How? We have an advocate who pleads on our behalf. Now, I know that lawyers don't have a good rap. Everybody makes lawyer jokes. Make fun of lawyers until you need one. Then you're hoping for a good lawyer to do what it takes to get you off. You're probably innocent anyway, right? But you got to prove it. And we know that good lawyers are expensive, aren't they? <laughs> Only the super wealthy can afford the best lawyers. Well, there's a man, his name is Albert Stainos. Apparently, he's a good lawyer. Uh, And the reason why I know he's a good lawyer is, uh, well, I read it on the internet, but um, (laughs) he charges, ready, $15,000 an hour. Yeah, $15,000. You better be good. Well, he is good. Matter of fact, he's He's won 99.31% of his cases that went to court. 
He's lost only 0.69. He's so good, he's only, I mean, he can charge $15,000 an hour. That's just mind-blowing, isn't it? That's $250 a minute. That's more than $4 a second. Now, to put that in perspective, that's, 20, that's 2,000 times minimum wage. So anybody in here working minimum wage job? You know, high schooler, minimum wage? Takes you 20, it takes you 2,000 hours to earn what he earns in an hour. He, he earns 2,000 times your pay. Do you know how many work hours are in a year? 2,000, right? 40 hours times 50 weeks. He earns in an hour what you earn in a year. That's depressing, I'm sorry. (laughs) When you've done something wrong and he's sitting beside you, you're feeling pretty good. 99.31% good, right? John tells us we have an advocate. We have a better advocate than this man. Jesus Christ the righteous. And what if I told you that I could guarantee you an innocent verdict if you would trust in this advocate. Even though there is video footage of you committing high crimes of treason against the king of the universe. What if I tell you that He is not only your lawyer, your advocate, but the one who paid the penalty on your behalf. You see, our advocate has better credentials than Albert Stainos. He has a 100% success rate. He has never lost one. Jesus himself said this in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, if Jesus is your good shepherd, the one that wanders will be taken back on his arms and carried back into the fold. You see, Christ is our perfect advocate who pleads on our behalf. He's called righteous, Jesus the righteous. And he doesn't lie. He doesn't say that we're You claim that we're innocent. He doesn't plead our innocence. Instead, he admits that we're guilty. And this is where the analogy breaks down because he's not only our lawyer, but he's, he's the witness. He's the one who paid the penalty for us. You see... The way that you and I get off from having to pay for our sins is not by God sweeping it under some cosmic rug and pretending the sin never existed. No, it says that he is righteous and just. Justice will be paid. And it's not by Christ pleading our case and saying, look, the sins of this one are much lesser than the sins of someone else. No, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation. No, he pleads guilty. He pleads guilty on our behalf and pays the penalty for us. You see, he's not only our advocate, he's our substitute. 
God's divine wrath was poured out on him. This is what John means with this word propitiation. Some of us maybe aren't familiar with it. It means a wrath-removing or wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And it was God's love that motivated for, this, for him to do this, to send his son. Later in, in John, we read 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. John Piper wrote a book called The Passion of Jesus Christ. And in the book, the subtitle is 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Suffer and Die. 50 reasons. 50 good biblical reasons, right? He's just quoting scripture throughout the book. 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. You know what the first reason he lists is? To absorb the wrath of God. Here's what he says in the beginning of his book. If God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. Just ignore it. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for the son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving, therefore he is willing to meet the demands of his justice. And the good news is that this is open to all. Christ's work is done pro bono. If you know what that term means, right? It's the term that lawyers use when they're, when they're donating their time, work without, without pay. All of Christ's work. Freely come. Freely receive. And it's not limited. It says it's open to all. You see, in the first century, deities were tribal. They were geographical, local. And what John is saying is, no, it's not limited to just the Jewish people. It's open to all. This is true from the very beginning. Peter preaching at Pentecost said, the promise is for you and for your children. Mainly a Gentile audience. But then he says, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Whatever age, gender, ethnicity, social status, it does not matter matter if you trust in him and believe in what he has done and hold on to him he is your advocate he is your substitute you see John's purpose for writing is so that his read, his readers that they will know they have eternal life he is writing to comfort and to give them assurance but at the same time he's exposing those who are pretenders 350 years ago, a man by the name of Matthew Mead wrote a book. It's in 1661. The title of the book is called The Almost Christian Discovered. Listen to the purpose, he says, in writing this book. He says, my design herein is that the formal, sleepy professor may be awakened. He's not talking about a seminary professor who's dozing off. Um, he's talking about those a professor or somebody who professes faith in Christ, but Sin has lulled them to sleep. They may be truly converted, but they, are, they have, they have been, been walking around in the darkness for a while. And so their fellowship with God is being cut off. But he also says it's also written for the hypocrite, those who are pretending. And so he wrote this book called The Almost Christian Discovered. And his, his, the, the question he's answering is this. 
How far may a person go in the way to heaven and yet be but almost a Christian? Or he says, to put it differently, how far may a person go in profession of religion and yet after all fall short of salvation? How far may he run and yet not so run as to obtain? And so he lists 20 possible attainments that people can have and yet still be almost a Christian. He says, a person may have much knowledge about God, Christ, and the Bible, and yet be almost a Christian. Right? We know that's true. It says the demons believe and they tremble. Your theology is not as good as the demons. and It's not enough, is what he's saying. He says a person may have great gifts and yet be but almost a Christian. A person may have a high profession of religion and be involved in religious activities, right? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do great miracles in your name? Depart from me. A person may be a good standing member of a church and yet be almost a Christian. A person may do all as to external duties and worship as a true Christian can and yet be almost a Christian. He says a person may even oppose their sin, hate it, fight against it, and yet be almost a Christian. He says a person may have hopes of heaven, be under great visible changes, be very zealous in religious matters, be much in prayer, suffer for Christ. Right? Paul says even if you give your body to be burned and have not love, it's nothing. Obey the commands of God and yet be but almost a Christian. Brothers and sisters, fellowship with God is what we were created for. Don't get close only to be exposed later as one who never knew Christ. And don't let devotion to lesser things destroy your fellowship with him. Don't keep your sin in the dark. John says, confess it. Look to Jesus, the advocate, who pleads on your behalf, who's done more than that. He's become our substitute. Let's pray together. Lord, these are, these are hard words. The words of your son that many will say, didn't we do certain things? And yet you will say, I never knew you. Lord, I pray that that would not be true for anyone in this room. Father, if there's been someone who's been hiding, hiding their sin, that today will be the day of salvation, that you will work in their hearts, that you will stir them up, that you will call them to yourself, that they would see the glory and the beauty of a salvation that is offered for free through your Son. Lord, if there are those here who may be sleeping, their, their consciences have been dulled and numbed by their sin, Father, would you, would you wake us up? Would you have mercy on us, Lord? Wake us up so that we would come out of our slumber and seek you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would strive to, to walk and live in the light, that we would confess our sins, expose them. Thank you, Lord, that this message is 
open to all. You simply ask that we trust, that we believe in a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Father, do a great work among us. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.